Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Revelation chapter 1, we will begin again our reading in verse 1. Last week we got part of the way through chapter 1 and uh, we will move on today. We may finish it today, I'm not sure. I sure do appreciate you not worrying about that, at least I don't think you do. Uh, Just there's so much uh, in this one chapter especially. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read all through verse 20. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Just don't forget that. That's what it is. Which God gave to show to his bond servants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel or his messenger to his bond servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be again. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker and the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the isle or the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'll just pause here. Why was he on the island of Patmos? It's easy just to say, well, Domitian the emperor had exiled him there. But that's not what John says. He says, I was there because of the Word of God. I was right where God wanted me. You know, we say often nowadays, especially in uh, kind of our entitlement sort of culture, that, 
you know, uh, we tell people, don't blame God for what people did to you. Maybe you had a bad experience or whatever at church, and, and that's a famous saying. I, I would give the inversion of that and say, don't blame people for what God may be doing with you. You may be in a difficult place because that's exactly where God wanted you to be. He may have you on a deserted island to teach you some things. He might have taken away some things that were distracting you in your life. So don't always blame people for the difficulties in our life. Sometimes it is God who has moved us to a place that we may not fully understand. I was in the Spirit, verse 10, on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet say, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed with a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last, and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We began last week trying to navigate this passage, and boy, it is such a, a, a powerful word. I know we say that a lot, but boy, Revelation chapter 1, when it comes to revealing to us what our Savior is like, man, it just is impregnated with meaning in, in every verse, and We shared some of it with you last time. We talked about why it was written the way it was. We talked about the fact that uh, when it was written and and what was going on there and how that those that were around the church were now like Domitian, the emperor. He has now reinstituted emperor worship. So it's not just enough to 
to, to give him honor or to, to uh, respect him. No, he demands that we worship him, that the church worship him. And so it's similar to our world today. Some that at one time just demanded to be tolerated are now demanding far more than toleration. Not, I just want to be married. Uh, I want to be married in the church, whether I believe in what that church teaches or believes or not. And, and we see so many attacks like that. This is what was going on around them. We also talked about the fact that it was written in apocalyptic language, language that will never, ever change. It, it sounds mysterious to us in a sense, but fire will always be fire. Snow will always be white. So when he writes, he is writing to us with this imagery that will stay the same, and we can read this book in the first century we can read it in the 21st century, and it will still mean the same thing as with all of God's Word. We entitled the passage that we're dealing with, The Revelation of Our Wonderful Savior. I would remind you that we use wonderful here in the biblical sense. Wonderful for us is sometimes a cute puppy or maybe a, a a present that uh, someone gave us or just a great day we had. No, wonderful in Scripture means to cause wonder. He is one that he's unfathomable. You just cannot wrap your mind around him. He's almighty. He's the first. He's the last. He's the beginning. He's the end. He was and is and is to come. And he's those things, all three at the same time. So it, it's, it's a wonder. That, that he is uh, presenting to us. He is a wonderful Savior in that sense. We shared with you last week, first of all, his salvation. Verse 5. This is one reason we need to understand Jesus and, and, and just exactly who he is. He is the one who has released us from our sins. Nothing more important than that uh, he has, if we're loosed from our sins, the Greek word luo is used there. And if we're loosed from our sins, we've been set free from our sinfulness. And I can just tell you, boy, there's just nothing else in life that will ever top that. If you never get healed of the disease you have or the physical ailment or you never meet the right guy or, or whatever happens in your Life, I can just tell you, if he's forgiven you of your sin and you know him as your Savior, the most important thing in life has taken place and we should glorify God because of that. We also talked about his sacrifice. He says that he released us from our sins by his blood. We like to say sometimes that salvation is free, but it wasn't free for God. It cost him everything. He must die and we must die. Now my death, my taking up my cross does not help me to be saved in any way. It is the result of me being born again. It is his death that pays for my sin. And we never need to take that lightly. I can just tell you. 
We love passages about like the one where the woman was caught in adultery and, and, and people read that as if Jesus said, look, I'm not near as tough on sin as that crowd that drug you out here. You, 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 just, you get, on, get on along now, little gal, and you behave yourself. Boy, that is so not what happened there. Death was what was called for, and they were right. Only death can pay for any kind of sin. They thought adultery was worse than the rest of them, but Jesus was like, no, only death can pay for any sin. And the only way that Jesus could tell this woman, go and sin no more, I do not condemn you, is because someone was going to die, and it wasn't going to be her, it was going to be him. Otherwise, he had no hope for her whatsoever. We so misunderstand that Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous for talking about cheap grace. That's when we take God's grace for granted or we did in the, one of those sin management programs where before you sin, you've already, we've already calculated in that, well, God will forgive me. You know, and, and God, you're just going to have to forgive me because I'm about to go do something I know I shouldn't do. I know God will forgive me. And you might not utter it in those words, but... In your mind, that's your mindset. That is cheap grace, my friend. And eventually it will pay harsh dividends. We talked about salvation and sacrifice. This brings us to our first point today. He talks also about his strategy. He reveals to us his strategy. Verse 6, he has made us. He's letting us know Our role in all of this, he has made us to be a kingdom and priest. A kingdom and priest. If I were to ask you today, and you don't have to answer. If you answer out loud, feel free to. But if you're wrong now, I'm I'm not going to make it right for you, okay? But if I were to ask you today, what is the number one thing that Jesus taught about more than anything else? What was foremost in the teachings of Jesus, by far, there's not a close second. He talked more about it. The first words that he uttered when he started his ministry in the first chapter of Mark, he started with these words. What was the thing that Jesus preached about more than anything else? It's the kingdom of God. His first sermon was repent. I know that's hard for people to believe. His first sermon was repent because the kingdom of God is near. Matter of fact, that word will occur about 200 times in the gospel, and it'll come from the lips of Jesus, just the word kingdom, 160-something times. But he talks more about that. He taught more about that than anything else. And that is important because when you teach on the kingdom of God and you preach that there is a kingdom of God, it's divisive. It really is. It's distinguishing and and it even discriminates. Those are all words that, that we hate in our culture nowadays. But Jesus is making an announcement here that, look, you have the kingdom of the world. He says, I have brought near to you another kingdom. And it is a kingdom of God. It's like two buses. Decide which one you want to get on. 
because one's going to hell. One will be destroyed with everything else in this world. But he says the other one is the kingdom of God. It is, it is where uh, those that will be looked down upon by the, the ones on the other bus, oh, in, in this world, the peacemakers will see God and, and the meek will inherit the earth. It's just a, a total different world. It's like two realities that are side by side. And, and unfortunately, Jesus will go on to teach us that the vast majority are going to ride the bus to hell. The vast majority are not going to be a part of the kingdom of God. But it is time to to make up your mind. It's really like a second exodus, some theologians tell us. As a matter of fact, he even told his people, Israel, in Exodus chapter 19, he says, And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You were to be the ones that was going to tell the world, and through you, Israel, you were supposed to be the ones that the whole world could come to know salvation in God. But boy, they failed miserably at it. So now we don't have Moses, uh, we have Jesus, and instead of the Egypt, we're being separated from the world. And I would also say this, just like when they left Egypt, the vast majority of those who left decided they wanted to go back before they ever made it, ever made it to the promised land. It, it's, a, it's a divisive thing to talk about the kingdom of God. And the reason it is is because some are in it and some are not. A few are in it. This is what Jesus said. And most are not. And most never will be. Most never will be. Most will be, if it's, at some will be like, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I was kind of there at one time, I guess, preacher, I'm backslid or whatever. Well, be careful how you use that word. Because I think a lot of people think, well, I'm backsliding away from God and all that. But if he comes back today, it's all cool because I used to go to church. Or I got baptized when I was a kid. Or I made a decision of some kind or another. Or, or whatever in your life. I want to tell you, you are either in the kingdom of God or you are in the kingdom of the world. And most people will die in the kingdom of the world. That's from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. So when the church preaches the kingdom of God, we can do it with humility, we can do it with respect, we can do it with honor, we can do it with with, with humility, but I can just tell you, at the end of the day, most people are not going to be saved. Most are not going to be part of the kingdom of God. And if you're thinking about, well, I sort of miss old Egypt, you know, and, and, and boy, I think life was a little better back then. I, you won't be the first as a crowd headed that way. Matter of fact, he said that way is very broad. And he said many find it. But the way of the kingdom of God is narrow. His word, not mine. Few. Few find that way. That's a powerful word, friend. The kingdom of God. And what did Jesus come and preach about more than anything? The kingdom 
of God. We can't just blur over that. That's a powerful truth. We, most people, if you ask them, what did Jesus talk about more than anything? Oh, love, feeding the hungry, you know, treating others like you would have them treat you. He says that one time, and we think that's all he ever said. Judge not. That's the shortest chapter in all of Scripture, Matthew 7. It's two words long as far as most people are concerned. Judge not, and they quit reading. You can just read the rest of that one chapter and figure out that our understanding of what he was saying is miles away from from what most people believe about judging nowadays. It's nowhere close to what Jesus was teaching. He says, I have come to make you a kingdom. He also calls us priests. Now, how about that? We were pretty taken aback around here when we found out we were saints. Well, you've graduated since then. We are now priests. I I know the church down the street would have a little trouble with that, but I don't really care too much about how much trouble they have with it because they didn't make me a saint and they didn't make me a priest. God did. We are priests. As a matter of fact, Peter will remind us again in 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's not universalism. That's not, hey, everybody's going some way or another. No. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light what do we do as priests well what do priests always do in the old testament priests represented humans to god and god to humans so let's just take a second and learn our job we're supposed to represent human beings before god pray for them try to lead them to the lord and then we're supposed to present god to human beings and if he is alive inside of me that's that's where they're going to see him if he's not living inside of me then they they they're never going to see him they're never going to see him in me I, as a priest i am to represent god to human beings and and i'm also to try to bring human beings go and teach them whatever he has commanded me. I have a dual function as a priest. And that's what he calls us. That's what he calls us. Man. Salvation. He explains that, his sacrifice. He talks about his strategy. He reveals yet another thing to us. He reminds us in verse 8 of his supremacy. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I think most of us know that that's the first letter and last letter of the Greek language. If you don't, then congratulations. If you're ever on Jeopardy, you can give me a cut of it. There were two O's in the Greek language. One's Omicron, that's Micron, that's small O, short sound. The last letter in the Greek language is not Z. <laughs> It's the Omega, or the long O. I am the first and the last, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's way of telling us, I will have the last word. 
Man, what an awesome thought. I mean, you think about that circumstances will not have the last word in the believer's life. I don't care what has happened to you, how badly you've been hurt, how sick you are, all of those things. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, I know they can be horrible, but please note this. If disease or sickness or an accident or tragedy takes you out of this world today, if you know Him as your Savior, then, my friend, you're going to go and live with God forever. When he says, I'm the firstborn of the dead, firstborn, boy, the, the guys Wednesday night got it big time, man. We just had a, a little bit of worship going on Wednesday night. You ought to, ought to come and, and check it out. Some of these guys get wild in there. But we were talking about if he's the firstborn, that means there's going to be more. That means not only is he the firstborn from the dead, but one of these days if he tarries is coming and, and, and I leave this world by death, I will wake up in glory and live with him forever. Because he says, I was dead. I was what you dread, Mike. I was the greatest, I, I, I experienced that great enemy called death. And, and Paul was so taken by it, he even gouged the, the beast. He said, oh, death, where is your sting? And grave, what happened to your victory? Because in Christ Jesus, we can overcome all of that. He has the last word. Not cancer. Not sin. Not even death. John ends the verse by saying he is the Almighty. He's only called that one time in the entire New Testament outside of the Revelation. John calls him that nine times in the Revelation. Because we're near in that time when it's time for the world to understand that God is Almighty. There's so many forces around us that look so powerful. Looks like today if you have money, you can get away with anything. If you're mean enough, you can just shoot your way through it. People in our world, it just blows my mind. When they gang up on a store and somebody hollers go and 25 of them rush in, they take whatever they want and they leave. We, we almost feel helpless when we see those kinds of things going on around us. It's incredible. Nation taking over other nations, threats, death abounds, all kinds of stuff, banks failing, all kinds of things right now that, that could worry us to death. And if I didn't know Jesus Christ, they would worry me, but they worry me very little because I want to tell you, I know the Almighty. He'll have the last words. His salvation, sacrifice, strategy, supremacy, he also talks about his stability. We're going to go back to verse 8. Who is and was and is to come. You see, I know we've talked about it a lot around here. And people still squint when I bring it up. I hope they squint because it's hard to understand, not because they don't believe it. But God is not at all limited by time. I can't go back into my past. And I have no idea what my future actually holds. I don't even know if I'll be here tomorrow. Man, 
Loretta may be remarried by next Sunday. But Jesus Christ says, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. I love that. Remember when he was having a battle with the Pharisees in John chapter 8 and he was talking about you are of your father, the devil? Oh, boy. So many things Jesus said that, I don't know, it just don't seem to make it to Facebook. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And I'm not everybody's father. Some people, their father is the devil. That's what Jesus said. How dare him? They said, Abraham is our father. And I love it. And in verse 58, Jesus looks at them and says, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was. I am. You would think he'd have said, "Well, I was." And in English, he'd get a B on that. But he is—he's not limited to time. I am before Abraham. I, I am not. I don't live linearly. I don't have days. I don't have a calendar. I—I I, time is a part of my creation. The evening and the morning was the first day, and the evening and the morning was the second day, and the seasons and. All of that is a creation of God, but they do not limit him. He is the one that made them. He lives in the eternal realm. Now, let me give you something awesome. That boy, this is something you can take home with you here. On over in Revelation chapter 13, the beast shows up. And here's what verse 8 of Revelation 13 says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the life or the book of the life of the, of the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So when did he write our names in the Lamb's book of life? Before he even created the world. How could he do that? I wasn't even born, Pastor Mike. I am telling you, you and I live in this time continuum. And one day, hallelujah, it will be no more. And we will step into that eternal realm with God Almighty. So he knew me before he ever made the first grain of sand. He put my name down in the Lamb's book of life. He had already chosen me before the world was ever even created. Why would you ever think you could be saved and somehow another lose it? <sighs> Man. That's when my name was written. He's such an awesome God. The eternal almighty. Richard Niebuhr, German theologian, probably didn't have to tell you that. but He said one time, he said, we have so humanized God and so deified man that we can now hardly tell the difference. 
People feel like they are the master of their soul. Remember our poem we read recently? I mean, God helps me, but he really only helps me to get where I want to go. Is that what you believe? Is that, is that what people, people think that? I, I'm, I'm not saying you do. If, if you do, I, boy, I hope, you'll, I hope God changes your mind and, and heart. He is God and I am not. Just think about the awesomeness of God and how unawesome we are. We, are, we, we have no idea what will to happen to us and and then we don't know if we'll even see the house again that you left this morning to come to church. You don't know if you'll ever go back there. Really. I know you're planning on it, but, and I am too. But we might not. We have no idea. And God is not limited to any of that. Man, hallelujah. Also, number six is scrutiny. His scrutiny in verse 13, John says that I saw the Lamb, or I saw the Son of God, or one like the Son of God, in the middle of the lampstands. And in verse 20, he tells us, we've not gotten there yet, but that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He is not an absentee Savior. I I want you to know we've had someone with us, and his name is Jesus Christ, and this church belongs to him. And John says, when I saw Jesus, I saw him standing, walking actually among the lampstands. Now this is about the best episode of Undercover Boss I believe I've ever seen. He's here. He sees what we are doing and he knows what we're not doing. And he knows when our priorities are all whacked. And he sees us when we glorify ourselves. He sees us when we use this place uh, to, to show off our talents or our abilities or whatever. He watches us when we desecrate his name by not loving one another and caring for one another. He knows when preachers are not preaching the gospel. He is not an absentee saint. Savior. He is walking among his churches. You read chapter 2 and 3, you can tell, boy, he knows all about them. He knows all about them. Oh, sorry, Tyra, you're doing great, but that gal Jezebel. And I'm not mad at her, I'm mad at you. Because you tolerate her. You tolerate her. You know, I think about that word tolerate a lot. If someone asks you, are you tolerant? How would you answer that? Would you say yes? Would you say no? That's a yes or no question, but it's not a yes or no answer, is it? Adolf Hitler tolerated the butchery of Six million Jews, 12 million, probably all together. Mao Zedong was tolerant. He tolerated killing probably three, four times that many. Some people tolerate a man marrying another man. We even have people nowadays that are beginning to tolerate pedophilia. 
So I'm going to ask you again, are you tolerant? I hope you know that's an incomplete question. And sometimes people treat it as if it is a virtue that can stand alone. What do you tolerate? Some things I do tolerate. I I tolerate them fairly well. And I hope I can get better at tolerating things that glorify God. But if you want to kill an unborn child, I'm going to become very intolerant of that. It's the same way with the man who was living with his father's wife at the church at Corinth when Paul wrote to them. He didn't ask for his name. He didn't say, tell him I want to meet with him. He didn't say, I need to have a chat with that young man. No, he tells the church at Corinth, you should have already put him out of the fellowship. Oh. They were tolerant. They'd get points for that. Man. His scrutiny. And when he's walking among us, verse 14 says this. His eyes are like blazing fire. Fire consumes things. And it is a great test of the quality of something. And it is used that way throughout Scripture. When fire is applied to gold, silver, and precious stones, they become better. And when, uh, when fire is applied to bad things, they are destroyed like wood, stubble, and hay. So if you think, or I think, well, maybe I'm hiding that. God doesn't really know I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. Or God doesn't really know that, well, you know, we're not married. Or God doesn't really know that, you know, I don't tithe. Most people would probably think I do or whatever. I don't care whatever it is. Just I hate giving lists of sins because you could go on forever. And you could go forever just talking about mine. I hate those things, but I can just tell you this. There's nothing that God doesn't see. His eyes of fire will burn through those little fig leaf aprons we, we, we make. And I mean, it, wouldn't t- it won't take long. John says, as a matter of fact, when I saw God, I fell down like a dead man. I fell down like a dead man. It's a truth and a powerful truth that when we really see God, we all die. I know the scripture says no man has seen God and lived, but there's a spiritual side of that as well because when I really see God for who he is, all my excuses and all of, of, of the, the compromises I have made and, 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 and all of the things that, that I think are right that I know is not and all of that, all of that just dies. All of that just, it, it is destroyed when I see God, when I really get a picture of who God is, I begin to get a better picture of who I am not. Number seven, his selection. Verse 17, John says he put his right hand on me. He's about to call John to do something awesome. And when he does that, he puts his hand on you. Verse 17 is where we find it. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first 
and the last. Man, don't miss this. Okay? Elbow him and wake him up. He needs to hear this. When God puts his hand on you, yeah, Wally, wake up. Ursula just about knocked him out of the chair. When God puts his hand on you, you'll be amazed at what he can do in your life. I I told you at the beginning of this, or a few weeks ago, I don't remember exactly when, I told you, man, I'm so inspired by missionaries and their stories. William Carey. I was, got to tell you this, just so you'll know how imperfect I can be. I mean, on easy stuff. I was preaching in India. I had an awesome translator at the time. Man. And when I was preaching and I talked about when John Kerry came to India as a missionary, he flew his private jet over there to do it. It's not John Kerry. It's William Carey. And do you know my translator? Afterwards, I told him, I said, man, tomorrow we got to go back and tell them the right one. As if they knew John. He said, I took care of it. He didn't even translate John. He just translated William and thought, how stupid is this guy? And kept right on going. William Carey went to India in 1793. I think he spent 45 years there. When he first got there, he went to a dinner for some dignitaries. And one of the dignitaries knew that when he was growing up, he worked in his dad's shoe shop. His father was a cobbler. And he made shoes and So this dignitary that was wanting to, of course, you know, humiliate William Carey wasn't real keen about him and wasn't impressed with him and wanted to let him know how impressive he was, said, I suppose, Mr. Carey, you once worked as a shoemaker. Hmm? William Carey responded humbly. He said, no, your lordship, not as a shoemaker. I was only a shoe repairman. He claimed to not even make shoes. He said, all I could do was just mend them. Now, that's William Carey. He never even went to high school. And he never went to college. But God's hand was on him. Let me tell you a little bit more about him. He knew English and Latin and Greek and Hebrew and French and, well, Dutch. He could speak them all fluently. He translated the Bible into Bengali. Now, that's a day's work. The whole Bible, as a matter of fact, he translated it into Bengali because we think he knew close to 40 languages. He translated it into Hindi. He translated it into four 
other local languages, and he translated parts of Scripture during his lifetime into 29 different languages. God's hand was on him. He also made great advancements in India in science and natural history and botany. He never went to high school, people. Finally, Brown University just conferred on him a doctorate. He deserved it. He was an incredible human being. And he was a powerful man of God. And and, and he led, you know, they say when they talk about William Carey, they say he only led about 700 people to the Lord. That puts him ahead of me. But they said the seeds he planted, boy, they would go on for years because he established all kinds of things. Some religious, other places of study. He established a school system while he was there. All of that from a guy that never went to high school. The hand of God was upon him. Now had the hand of Brown University been on him, oh, he'd have had something to hang on the wall. But he might have never, we may have never even heard of him. God's hand was on him. I love old Amos in chapter 7, verse 14. Amaziah told him, says, look, I don't mind you preaching. Just go preach somewhere else. And this is what Amos told Amaziah the king. He said, I was neither a prophet, or he came as a messenger of the king. He says, Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I was a shepherd. Oh, had a side job where I took care of sycamore trees. And in the very next verse, he says, but the Lord took me. I was a nobody. But when the Lord took me, he put a message in my mouth. And boy, I want you to know, go read the rest of that. See if Amos goes in. Man, I am really bummed that there seems to be some negative vibes coming from me. (laughs) Oh, no. He says, you go back and tell the king what's going to happen to him, his wives, and his children. And he never let up. God's hand was on him. Moses, he was where I'd want to be, on the backside of the desert, nobody around. <sighs> All he'd had to do was herd sheep. I mean, the kind that don't talk back. But God's hand was on him. Peter, he was loud and proud, couldn't keep his foot out of his mouth. But the hand of the Lord was on him. And Paul was already religious and already pious and already buried deeply in his faith. But the hand of the Lord touched him, changed him forever. Last of all, as we close, in verse 20, he says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And where did he say they were? He said, they're in my right hand. His right hand was his hand of authority. He says, the churches are mine. They're mine. 
They don't belong to pastors. They don't belong to influential families. They don't belong to Dr. Whizbang that has thousands to show up to hear a pep talk on being positive. No. He says, my church belongs to me. Matter of fact, he told us. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Will not. It is my church. And I will build my church. Boy, I've been trying to help him do that so long. Come on, God. I've been trying to get him to help me build a church. I spent a lot of years doing that. He's like, no, 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 no. It's not your church. And I don't expect you to build it, Mike. You let me build my church. You know, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how many of the last 43 years of my ministry that I spent trying my best to keep lost people in church. Why would they stay? Why would they even come? Church is a place where God's people come together and worship Him. It, it, it'd almost be like showing up for a birthday party and figuring out you get the wrong address because you didn't even know that person. You wouldn't just stay. You don't even know who He is. This place here is a place where we celebrate somebody. If you don't know Him, I, I, I can tell you, we're not going to just keep dancing Faster and faster and, 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 and consoling and compromising and, and, and reaching out and trying this, that, and the other and putting up with all kinds of, of immaturity and demands. We're not going to do that to keep you here. Because if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and He put you here, we won't be able to run you off. But if you're lost and you don't know him, you'll do like a lot of others before long. You'll leave. I'm not saying everybody that's left is lost. Now, don't put that on Facebook. I'm not saying that. God leads people to other places. I got that. But I can tell you, this is a place where we come together to worship and glorify God and if you don't know him boy it'll take a lot of fresh coffee and, and hot bagels maybe a little rock music to start the service off how about that little Leonard huh I know some churches that do that boy a little sweet home Alabama just to, you know whet the appetite get them in and then tell them about Jesus. This is not a place to get them in. Jesus didn't tell the lost people to go to church. He told us to go to them. Jesus said that. Wow. One chapter. One chapter of the revelation of our wonderful Savior. Boy, I'd say he's hit us with some powerhouse truth praise the Lord God we thank you so much 
for not only loving us, loosing us from our sins, and loving us, God. But we thank you, Lord, for being so awesome. And then trying to tell us about it. God, these truths, they'll help us this week. They'll help us walk through uh, disease and hardship and death and, and brokenness, God, and sin and temptation. These truths will help us, God, because we needed to know, we needed a reminder, Lord, that you're going to have the last word. You had the first word, Lord. You spoke and creation came into being. And one day you'll speak and creation as we know it will be no more. You're in charge, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Help us, Lord. Help us, God, to try to understand more every day concerning our wonderful, awesome Savior. In your name we pray, Lord. And only in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.